FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Tuesday, May 11th. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh Got a great group of people to talk with us today. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter of the AJC, is here. Uh, so is Michael Thurman, who is the CEO of DeKalb County. Uh, but today, I think one of the topics we're going to discuss will bring into play a former role he had as the labor commissioner for the state of Georgia. And... Uh, Sam Olins, uh, whose uh, previous work will also come into play today, a former state attorney general, before that the chair of the Cobb County Commission. So uh, a great group of people for uh, today's show. I want to get right to our conversation, and, and I want to start with a conversation that I acknowledged to the, to the panel before we went on the air. I've been a little slow to pick up on, but it is becoming, now it's gaining a lot of traction especially since the weak job report that was released at the end of last week saying that far fewer people uh, took employment than had been expected, and uh, President Biden's been under a lot of fire for it. But uh, it has also raised questions about whether or not individuals in Georgia and elsewhere are relying on uh, checks from the government rather than going out and finding work. At least that's a perspective uh, some have on that, particularly Republicans. Tamar Hallerman, uh, let's start you uh, uh, get you going with this subject. Um, so we know that the feds have been issuing $300 additional unemployment uh, checks uh, to people out of work. And uh, for a while now, Republicans have complained that uh, people are making more money getting government checks than if they got jobs. And now there's a really a strong movement in a number of states to eliminate those checks, redirect them elsewhere. Brian Kemp the other day said he thinks that might be a good idea. And now the Georgia Chamber is on that side of the story as well. Why don't you pick up from there, tomorrow? Yeah, so these are $300 weekly subsidies that unemployed Georgians are getting on top of um, of regular unemployment insurance. And that's been happening for pretty much um, all of the, the pandemic with the idea that um, especially with with schools, um, you know, that had been out or, or running virtually for a long time, a lot of families don't have child care. A lot of people have lost their jobs and that this is kind of a critical safety net to um, kind of help people along during the pandemic. But lately you've seen, um, especially as governments have started reopening as companies have started hiring um, a lot of people complaining that there are way more open jobs than there are Georgians seeking unemployment and that all of this money is incentivizing people to stay home rather than come back to work so you've seen Republican governors in different states South Carolina and Montana were the first to announce that they were going to end their involvement in that federal program at the end of June. These benefits expire in September. Um, and we just saw Brian Kemp yesterday mention that it was time to revisit this issue. And as you mentioned, Bill, the Chamber of Commerce is on it and, and advocating for Georgia to end its involvement. Uh, the Georgia Farm Bureau, the Georgia Association of Manufacturers. So a, a lot of big, powerful organizations that say that it's time to kind of nudge people back into the employment pool. Um, and different states are doing different things. You know, Montana, instead of giving out these $300 a week benefits, they announced that they're going to do a $1,200 one-time um, payment once somebody agrees to go back to work, once they find a new job. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether Governor Kemp endorses something like that or whether it'll just be cut off cold turkey and kind of pushing people back in. Michael Thurman, uh, since you oversaw uh, the Labor Department, uh, uh, you will you will already be aware, I'm sure, of the current figures right now. The Labor Department reports that there are over 231,000 Georgians on unemployment as of right now, but they also say uh, that there are some 406,000 job openings, or at least that's what the Georgia Chamber uh, reports. Um, so, Michael, uh, give us your take on, you know, one of the problems here, of course, is that it, you know, if you just 
there may be some really interesting um, conversations around whether this is a good idea or not. Unfortunately, something that hovers over all of it is this old trope, particularly about minorities not being willing to work, the notion of the welfare queen and all that sort of thing, which are really bad uh, racist images of the past. But, but I think they somehow still play into a conversation about this. It's unfortunate, first of all, that we would resort to, as you described, these old narratives where we seek to demonize people. First, in order to qualify for unemployment insurance benefits, the 236,000 Georgians currently receiving benefits, you had to have lost your job through no fault of your own. This is not welfare. These are benefits set aside for hardworking men and women who lose their job through no fault of their own, not to be confused with cash assistance first. So let's move from there. Of 200, you can't demonize 236,000 people with a broad brush. Who can say or who will say that all 236,000 people are not looking for work or refusing jobs. It's irrational to think such and insulting the hardworking Georgians, many of them who are women, and we know that this recession has disproportionately impacted women, and particularly women of color and entry-level workers. Uh, many of them, I received an email from one of my employees yesterday who is now trying to provide childcare and education for two children one of whom have underlying medical conditions and are not yet back in school. So what are families to do? And finally this, if you're going to eliminate the benefit and say you got to get a job, I think it's incumbent upon the Labor Department and the governor to reopen the labor offices around the state. A key component, a key resource that the Labor Department provides is it helps people get back to work. So if you have the Labor Department offices shut down, how can you then require or suggest that people aren't doing what they need to do to get back to work? The question is, I'm not opposed. I, I was a big uh, uh, person encouraging work, but the role of state government is to assist people to get back to work. If we're going to reduce or eliminate the $300, then I'd say open up the Labor Department first. S Sam, I want to be careful. Uh, I, I, when I suggested, you know, there are these old tropes, there, they are about, you know, people who would rather be on welfare than work. I am not hearing, I don't think, and I'm questioning whether you may or may not be hearing those arguments now. My suggestion was simply that, unfortunately, that's a script that sort of runs underneath all of this from years and years ago. Sam, your thoughts on all this? So first, I haven't heard any uh, perceived racist comments in the right. discussion. Secondly, um, I think Michael covered many areas, and we need to distinguish between those areas. One area, for instance, is the adverse effects that pandemics had on women and return to work. And we have to acknowledge that um, for better or worse, until the schools are totally open, um, many families are facing a really rough time where if you had two people with an income, you now only have one. Uh, whether it's the woman or the man that is at home, it's adversely affecting their, their finances. And secondly, one of, one of the biggest problems I had with that program from the onset was it didn't take into account how much they were earning beforehand. And I don't understand how you have a lump sum irrespective of salary. Uh, that, that to me made no sense. Thirdly, as we're now in spring and we're looking at crops, I have no doubt the farmers are scared to death that their usual battle to obtain enough employees is now worse if for nothing more than simply the pandemic. So I, I do think the Georgia Chamber of Commerce is correct to express these concerns, 
and I do think that uh, changes are are necessary. But I also Tomorrow, agree with without op- open up the ability for folks to learn about jobs, et cetera, and to have a better shot to get one. Tomorrow, without regard to race, ethnicity, or whatever, nevertheless, the message has been made clear. Uh, Americans, uh, th- that $300 ought to go away, say the advocates for that program, because many Americans would rather collect that money than go to work in jobs that may pay less, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been the history of a lot of um, the debate over these issues. And one thing that's important, yeah, you look at the numbers cited by the Chamber of Commerce, and they're very stark, right? You know, they say that there have been 400,000 open jobs um, over the last 90 days, and that, you know, 230 thousand some people um, collecting unemployment. But it is worth noting also that that number doesn't take into account where people live or the skills that they have, right? If you're living in Valdosta, an open job in Dalton isn't going to do you much good. Or if you have a background in IT, um, are you really going to want to work at McDonald's or vice versa? If you work at McDonald's, you might not have the skill set to work in IT. So sometimes just looking at raw numbers can be a little bit misleading. That said, in the Georgia Chamber's letter, they, they do talk about, um, you know, also wanting the state to incentivize um, job training programs at community colleges, health care programs, that, or sorry, uh, child care programs and that sort of thing to help. Um, but as Sam mentioned, you know, a lot of these issues with child care, that's not going to go away anytime soon. And there, there's not going to be a really easy fix where somebody can, you know, you know, take their wand and, and change things overnight. So it's a tough proposition and, and something that's going to work for one family or, or one set of people is not going to work for every person. Um. Michael, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, and let's be clear, the, the, this letter that we've discussed comes from the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, not the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce. Uh, the Georgia Chamber tends to be more conservative than the Metro Atlanta Chamber. But, Michael, you're certainly welcome to weigh in any way you want, but let me uh, amplify something Tamar just said. The, the Georgia Chamber does have some pretty uh, solid proposals here. Uh, the first one on their list is suspend additional federal unemployment benefits and direct available funds to a statewide job signing bonus program or other back-to-work initiatives that helps match jobs to job seekers. This will incentivize Georgian return, Georgians' return to work efforts. Michael? Well, first of all, Tamar is exactly right as she analyzes it. And look, my good friend Chris Clark at the Georgia Chamber have a tremendous amount of respect for him. The number one resource to address job search friction, which is what Tamar just uh, described, you can have 400,000 jobs, you could have 200,000 unemployed people, but there is a process of job search interview training that has to take place. And the key player in that is the Georgia Department of Labor. That is how you overcome the job search friction that she just described. So I would hope that the chamber and others, let's don't go down in the rabbit hole to your point of, of, the, um, uh, of the buzzwords, the unstated narratives, and let's help get hardworking Georgians back to work. This is not an issue about race or politics. It's an issue that there is a national economic crisis as well as a medical one, something we've never seen before. And we were, and many of the jobs, by the way, that people have skilled and have experience in aren't coming back anytime soon. So they have to be retrained and reskilled and move into new careers. That's a process. That won't happen in one month because of one uh, employment report. That is a process that will take months, if not years, in order to affect and achieve. So let's get about the business. Uh, the Georgia Chamber can play a huge role in helping to make sure that happens, reaching out to the Labor Department. Uh, Goodwill has a tremendous reemployment program. Those are the resources that have to be brought to bear, along with our technical colleges, to get Georgians back to work. Let's stop pointing the fingers and don't demonize people. I was the defects director during the welfare reform era, and the biggest thing I had to overcome was Newt Gendrich and his crew trying to demonize welfare recipients to what you see it. So, and we ultimately got 90,000 families off welfare into the workplace, but we didn't do it 
by demonizing and the vitriol and the finger pointing. Well, we should also point out, as long as you're talking about oh, some of the work you've done in the past, uh, Michael, and it's relevant to what you're saying now about how you get the Department of Labor to find ways to get out there and help people find jobs. You also were instrumental. You created what were essentially neighborhood uh, job centers that uh, people could come to. They had access to computers where they could look at jobs. There was counseling. And that was an innovation that uh, you really uh, got a lot of credit for during your tenure in that job. And I think those, what, do those job centers still exist and could they be put back into action? Well, some of them, yes, and they should be, quote, put back into action, as you just said, Bill. Look, I've committed my life to helping people get jobs. That's, that's how I, that's my career, uh, putting people back to work. Uh, uh, right now in DeKalb County, we kicked off our summer youth employment program. Uh, I believe it because that's the way I was raised by my father. There's dignity in work, but I take great offense when anyone either directly or subtly or covertly tries to suggest that somehow all of a sudden people who've lost their jobs in this pandemic have become lazy uh, uh, welfare mongers who don't want to go back to work trying to play to it. And that's not what the chamber is doing, but there's a subtext to that, and anyone who speaks on it needs to be sensitive to it and avoid it and make sure that that's not the message that's being delivered intentionally or not. Sam, before we leave this subject, um, the Department of Labor, of course, has been under heavy criticism for much of the pandemic for being very, very slow to process unemployment claims. And the governor uh, this week uh, vetoed a bill that was brought forward by those who were kind of frustrated with the Department of Labor that would have created a new position to directly address uh, uh, t dealing with people who uh, need help with unemployment. Um, your thoughts on what uh, on the fact that was vetoed, on whether the Department of Labor needs to be looked at more carefully as we move forward? So I have two thoughts there, Bill. One, I'm glad the governor vetoed it. Uh, for the same reasons that, frankly, the Secretary of State should still be chairperson of the state uh, election, election board. board. These folks are elected to do their job. If you have an issue with their performance, use the ballot box, not a law to um, get in the way of them doing their job. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the CEO would have been furious when he were labor commissioner of that type of uh, bill was initiated. Secondly, we need to acknowledge, although no one seems to be doing that, that over the last uh, decade, there has been a huge reduction in the labor department budget. So in fairness to Mark Butler, you had a pandemic, you had an unbelievable increase in need for folks to take advantage of the services of the Department of Labor. And he was grossly um, understaffed. And uh, it, it's easy to criticize an elected official. It's easy to criticize senior management. But if you candidly don't give them the employees and the technology to better do their job, shame on you. And, and, and frankly, uh, Commissioner Butler's been um, unable to have the appropriate resources to make a difference. Um, before we leave the subject, one last note, Michael Thurman. Although uh, Republicans often bear the brunt of uh, uh, people's criticisms about how they treat those on uh, federal assistance, uh, let's not forget one important thing, Mike Thurman. It was Democratic presidential candidate Bill Clinton who ran on a platform of wealth, work for welfare, who, who proposed reforming welfare so that a work requirement would be put in place. And he did that in his effort to attract more conservative Democrats into the, to his camp. Uh, but, but it has to be pointed out that he, a Democrat, did that, Michael. And passed that oh, law. Oh, absolutely. And I worked for a Democratic governor 
who supported it. And heck, I was a Democrat. I created the, the uh, wealth, the, uh, the workforce in Georgia. I'm a Democrat because I, it had nothing to do with politics except that I believe that there is dignity in work. And I remember sitting in welfare offices with my mother growing up. So I understand the, the, uh, the stigma and the embarrassment associated with it. So I felt it was the right thing to do, and it is the right thing to do. I've always supported work. Uh, as I said, as the welfare uh, reform director, as the, the labor commissioner, but also I also respect people and I treat people with respect regardless of their socioeconomic status. And the biggest mistake we can make is to seek to demonize folks, either intentionally or not, simply because of their socioeconomic condition or their employment status. That's where I draw the line. Um, thank you, Mike Thurman. Uh, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way, and we'll be back with a lot more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Sam Olins, Michael Thurman, Tamar Halderman join me on today's Political Rewind. Uh, Tamar, uh, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this, but it is certainly worth pointing out that there's another, there's a new election 2022 story in the uh, AJC this morning. Chris Carr, the attorney general, uh, has decided, uh, although some people had thought he was going to maybe make a race against Raphael Warnock, He's going to stay right where he is and hope to win re-election as attorney general. Um, I've said a couple times on this show that when big names like Carr decide not to step up to that Senate race, maybe some of it is they're still trying to figure out what the heck the landscape is for Republicans seeking higher office in the age of Donald Trump, yes? Exactly. And we still don't know exactly what's going to be happening on the Republican side of the race. As we've talked about on this show, uh, former President Trump is trying to push Herschel Walker into running. And until that happens, the entire Republican field is essentially frozen. So we don't know if somebody like Buddy Carter, who's expressed interest in the position, if he would jump in. So it is really tough um, for somebody like A.G. Carr. Also, of course, if he were to run for that seat, which, of course, was held by his former boss, Johnny Isaacson, for uh, for years, um, it would bring up a whole lot of unpleasant memories from the 2020 elections when he ended up fighting off a lot of the, the claims and lawsuits that Donald Trump and his allies were bringing when it had to do with um, the fairness of the November elections. So I think it makes his life a little bit easier to kind of stay put where he is. Um, there's going to be a pretty bruising Democratic Democratic primary, it looks like, for that seat between State Senator Jim Jordan and former prosecutor Charlie Bailey, who, uh, um, who Chris Carr very narrowly defeated four years ago. Um, so certainly an easier route for him um, going forward. So it'll be interesting to see if any other kind of Trumpy Republicans want to jump in or whether they let Chris Carr be. Well, Sam Olins, you uh, held that office before Chris Carr uh, stepped into the AG's role. Um, your thoughts on the fact that a re another pretty big-name Republican is choosing not to make a race against Raphael Warnock? So, first of all, I, while I do think the battle on the Democratic side for AG will be brutal, um, I'm also not convinced it's just the two of them. Uh, I'm hearing rumors of a third candidate. Um, so I think it gets worse rather than better for the Democrats. Um, I think Chris Carr is a really good person. Uh, I think he has a really good moral compass, and I think he's doing his best to deal in a political world where a moral compass is, frankly, in short supply, uh, unfortunately. And uh, as a result... Um, I think his decision's a very sound one. Uh, I think he has a record to run on. Uh, and uh, I think it's a much more secure and able position 
Uh, and I, I certainly appreciate his decision-making process. And, um, you know, frankly, with regard to Reverend Warnock, who, as you know, I like. Uh, I've known him for years. <coughs> I think the Republicans are uh, under um, under assuming that, that he'll be easy to beat. I think he'll be a very tough candidate. And uh, and I think that unless the uh, Republicans have a very united front, uh, you're more likely than not to see um, Reverend Warnock win re-election. Uh, but Sam, isn't it the is, aren't those words you just used what are very are, are so important in in that contest? Unless they have a united front, we see no uh, evidence that Republicans in the state unless they're all going to rally around Donald Trump, are going to have a united front, and that isn't a given at this point anyway. No, absolutely, but I think that's the same thing about Congress. It's the same thing about the Republican Party in general. If you were looking at history, you would say that the Republicans in D.C. take at least one of both of the chambers of Congress, but no one's going to bet on that due to the status of the current National Republican Party. Uh, and Georgia is a microcosm of what's going on nationally. Um, uh, Michael, I th- you, you know that Raphael Warnock is high, high, high up on the list of targets that Republicans have for the 2022 election cycle. The only problem with that is that he may be a target but there hasn't been a high-profile candidate to emerge yet. We think Gary Black has talked about jumping into that race. He's well-known in the state as ag- agriculture commissioner, well-liked. But he's not at the same level, I don't think, as a few other Republicans who uh, we may uh, have expected to jump into the race. So is Warnock going to have an easier election than people assume? Is Sam Olin's correct that Warnock's going to be very tough to beat? I agree that he's going to be difficult to beat, but Georgia is a battleground state. But I also know that uh, Reverend Warnock proved himself to be an outstanding candidate who could go toe-to-toe with a well-funded incumbent Republican senator and beat them. So that in and of itself sends a chilling message to anyone who wants to challenge him. He defeated an incumbent Republican senator. That almost never happened. Uh, if you really think about it. So any challenger has to take that into consideration. But uh, knowing Reverend Warnock and the people around him, they're not taking anything for granted. Uh, Georgia is a battleground state, and it's a year or so away, and we'll see how it plays out. But uh, what this really, really uh, reveals, I think Sam and Tamar both said it, is the disarray and you too, Bill, in the Republican Party. And really, is there a Republican Party? Is it? really just a Trump party. And I think really that's what we are having to come to grips with. Uh, the Republican Party has been has morphed into a Trump party, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, that's what it is. And the impact of that on Georgia politics and national politics will play out uh, over the next few years. One thing worth noting is that you know, Republicans right now are in the minority in the Senate, and it's so much easier to run as a party when you're not in power. It's much easier to unite against something than it is to unite for something when you're actually the one governing. So it'll be very easy for Republicans to pick apart everything uh, Raphael Warnock has done, or, or by extension, frankly, everything that Chuck Schumer has done as, as majority leader. Um, and because of that, even even if Warnock himself was not super into something that that maybe Schumer will will do, it'll be hard for him to separate himself from that. And if the whole electoral climate um, is benefiting Republicans, as many people expect it will in in midterms for the party out of power, um, you know that could be very harmful to to Senator Warnock. At the same time, so much of it will depend who's at the top of the ticket and running for governor next year. If it's somebody like Stacey Abrams, who really excites and unites Democrats, that will, of course, help Senator Warnock. Um, Or Republicans, if it ends up being Brian Kemp, who manages to squeak it out in a Republican primary, uh, that might hurt whatever Republican challenger emerges. At the same time, if it's somebody exciting, that could really help buoy them as well. So there's so many unknowns at this point. Uh, but it's worth talking about how much of it could be entirely out of the senator's hands. 
Yeah. Uh, of, of course, Sam, uh, Tamar just made a comment that uh, is interesting and deserves following up on, which is uh, Governor Kemp, uh, as a, a candidate who could have a challenge in the race, uh, he hasn't had one much of one so far. I mean, Vernon Jones is hardly uh, the heavyweight to, to take on uh, Brian Kemp next year, and we've seen no one else rise to the occasion. Uh, Doug Collins has already said no. So where do we stand on that? Is Brian Kemp going to have an easy road to get through the general, e- even if he's not liked by many Republicans out there? So you still have uh, State Senator Burt Jones, who uh, had a picture taken of him with President Trump recently in the only resort in Florida that seems to matter at the moment. Uh, (laughs) One I never heard of until several years ago. Um, But, you know, candidly, I think Tamar was being a little coy in her comment. Uh, Stacey's running for governor. There's no issue that Stacey's running for governor. There's no leading Democrat you talk to who doesn't know Stacey's running for governor. She isn't campaigning now because she doesn't need to campaign now because she already has the nomination. So that, that, that's an automatic. Other races, um, for instance, lieutenant governor on the D side are still wide open. Um, but there's no question that 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 uh, Stacey Abrams is the gubernatorial candidate. Um, all right, you're. But what you're what, one of the points that that you just made, Sam and Michael, uh, you get this is uh, she doesn't have to run yet because she is certainly going. Everybody will clear the way for Stacey Abrams and. Her ability to raise money is so extraordinary that it isn't as if she has to uh, jump in right now and come up with enough cash to make the race, Michael. No, everything, and you know, <laughs> uh, my good Republican friend Sam has correctly analyzed the Democratic field, and uh, what he says is true. But, uh, you know, I was watching media this week, and, and all the people who were so surprised that— uh, Mayor Bottoms is not no longer seeking the mayor's race. Uh, we are in a very unique environment politically, economically, socially in America. And anyone who sits here in May and swears that they know what's going to happen in April or November next year, that's not true. It, it is not true. Uh, and everyone has the right to speculate, but no one really knows. And one thing, who who would have thought that Joe that we would be talking about President Joe Biden uh, in the early on in the Democratic primary? So there's no way to know uh, who will win. And so one of the realities of dealing with a novel virus is creating novel situations, and you have to just wake up every day, assess the landscape, and then decide how you're going to proceed from there. And that's one of the mistakes I think we're making as a nation. And I tell my folks, don't rely on your experiences. Because if you're dealing with a novel crisis, how can you only rely on previous events and experiences when you're dealing with something new every day? So that's what you have to do in an environment. And that's why this is such a challenging environment for political leaders and why so many of them are either not running or choosing not to run just because of the severity of the challenges that we are facing in this state and across this nation. So um, I've got to get to a break in a couple of minutes, but Tamar, before I do, uh, speaking of of, uh, upcoming campaigns, speaking of the ability of a candidate like an Abrams to raise unlimited amounts of money, uh, Governor Kemp has signed the bill that creates these new so-called leadership committees, which will allow uh, lobbyists and other groups to put as much money as they feel they want to spend into the campaign coffers of people like the governor, people like the Speaker of the House, who can then distribute it among uh, those who they want. And they can, they can raise this money now during the legislative session. I mean, as if we don't have enough money in politics already, Tamar, here's the door opening for an even bigger haul of cash potentially for everybody out there, particularly Republicans, since they're in control. Sure. But, um, you know, Democrats, if they were to to win control, would also get the same benefits. And, and yeah, I mean, sure. it, it, if anything, it just 
you know, a lot of these members can still raise money from a lot of these special interests when they're out of session, but it just really creates this image of, of kind of a conflict of interest as, you know, as you're debating um, a sales tax on a certain industry, you know, that very industry can, can donate money to you. And really, it just mirrors what we've seen at the federal level for, for so long. So I know that in Georgia, this is a big change. But for me, as somebody who covered Congress for so long, yeah, of course, you can raise money while Congress is in session. Um, but obviously, good government folks, um, you know, are screaming at the top of their lungs about how bad this is. And um, yeah, kind of after Citizens United, just how rapidly a lot of the guardrails that that had been put in place to kind of limit the influ outside influences in government, how quickly those are all sort of falling away. Sam, you've stepped away from elective politics and made it clear you have no interest in going back. But the burden of raising uh, millions of dollars for a campaign, I would think, as a, somebody who was in politics for a long time, to be able to shed that responsibility must be one of the greatest reliefs of not continuing <laughs> as a candidate for public office. So look, uh, I, I think it's really important that when you come to office, you have your integrity, and when you leave office, you have your integrity. And I think you can still do that in local government. I don't see that being very doable for uh, statewide and federal positions. I think we're now in a hyper-partisan world where um, the norm seems to be selling your soul. So as, as I've mentioned a couple of times after my last campaign for re-election, um, where I won, I don't know, 15%, um, I, I looked at my wife and I said, it's, we're, it's over. I'm not running again. Uh, the writing was on the wall, how nasty the campaigns were getting, and I had no interest in being a part of one of those campaigns. I think uh, Michael, other than, in addition to the fact he didn't have any opposition, local government really gives you the ability to be close to the street, helping one's community, and staying out of the dirt which is great that the problem is those are the only positions at the moment, city and county, where I see someone being able to do that. Uh, if you get elected to the General Assembly, if you don't support your leadership, you're done. And the same thing in Congress. So I, I think we're unfortunately at a place where uh, ethics have become less important than in a long, long time. And for many of us, uh, we have no interest in going in that mud bath. Um, Michael, uh, Sam makes an interesting point. Uh, you, in, in local government, you are actually able to deal day in and day out with real people's problems. And you can, you can stay out of the dirt as long as you are honest and do the job with integrity um, is certainly the case. We certainly know of cities where mayors we have one example in the south part of southern part of York County right now, Michael Thurman, where there are questions about the local officials. But it is the place where you can do your job and, and actually have real returns without uh, getting into the muck of partisanship. Well, Sam is absolutely right. And at the end of the day, what you really want is to be able to say that you made a difference mm -hmm. and somehow you progress the jurisdiction uh, that elected you, you know, and I guess, and I've said it before, I'm, I'm, I think maybe modern politics has passed me by, and, you know, I'm not a culture warrior, and, uh, you know, it's not just about partisanship to me. Uh, it, you have to be able to make a difference and serve, and I think that's what Sam is saying, and at the local level, you know, I celebrated this weekend, we're doing bulky item pickups. So my sanitation guys were sending me pictures of old couches and stoves and stuff that they were picking up on on the curves around the Cap County, and I was so thrilled uh, by that bill. So if you got some old stuff in the basement, you need to get picked up. May is the time, and I'm going to look all the people in the Cap. We're doing free bulk item pickup all over the Cap this morning. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that is exactly the point. Local government serving the people. I, very quickly, uh, one of your predecessors, because I live in DeKalb County, called me up after winning election to that post and said, Bill, Bill, I'm asking everybody out there, what can I do? How can I make things better? What is your vision for what the can And I said to this person, um, you know what? Just build us some sidewalks. <laughs> and the answer was, okay, I'll do that. And we now have a lot of sidewalks, as you know, Michael Thurman, in DeKalb County. We got to get to our final break of the show. We'll be back in a At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Moment. Tamar Hallerman, Governor Kemp, yesterday signed the overhauled version of the citizen's arrest law, a law that has been on the books in Georgia since before the Civil War. And, of course, we know that it was in many ways inspired by, unfortunately, the death of Ahmad Arbery. Um, and the bill won a huge bipartisan uh, support. Ahmad Arbery's mother was at the signing. Uh, she said that it gave her a sense that at least her son did not die in vain. And at the same time, we now have a trial date for the three men accused of felony murder in the case. It'll start sometime in October, right? Yeah, and there's discussion in that case about whether to allow um, you know, evidence about Ahmad Arbery's past in this trial. Um, you know, past brushes that he had with the law, um, mental illness, that sort of thing. And there's there's a lot of fighting over that. But yesterday was obviously a huge moment in the State House. It came on the last day of Governor Kemp's veto period. Um, a huge moment with Ahmad Arbery's mother. And Georgia, of course, becomes the first state in the country to um, to nix uh, its stand your, uh, or sorry, its citizens arrest law from the books. Um, as you mentioned, implemented in 1863 as a way to capture runaway slaves who were trying to join the Union Army. Um, but it's something that had its roots in medieval England back when there were things like town walls, but something that was used to justify lots of lynchings and racially motivated violence um, over the years and a huge step for a state like Georgia that's still grappling with its past. Uh, we have a couple of lawyers with us today. Sam Olins, uh, when you see the uh, question about whether or not the judge will allow uh, evidence of the defense uh, it says that there, they say in their brief they have 10 instances in which Ahmad Arbery had one kind or another of running with the law. They cite a, a shoplifting uh, case. They cite the fact that he came into, I think, a school gym carrying a gun, uh, and they have others. They want the right to introduce that to show that Arbery was... Uh, not quite what the defense, I mean, what the prosecutors want to paint him as being, a sort of an innocent um, person. Um, and then they also want to take into account mental health issues uh, with Arbery. Uh, the judge is, most of the legal experts say the judge is probably not certainly going to allow the, the run-ins with the law into the case. Um, give us your thoughts on this. Um, one would allege that uh, the defense has no defense, so they've created these two motions. Um, Judge Walmsley is a very experienced um, jurist now. I was on the JNC when he interviewed and when Governor Deal appointed him a judge in that circuit. May, may, to uh, tell people what that means, JNC is. Judicial Nominating Committee. They interview prospective candidates and generally give the governor a short list uh, to their uh, after choose from. Uh, Wamsley, very experienced, very active in the uh, Savannah-Chatham community. I would suggest to you that Tamar has a better shot of winning the lottery this week than Judge Wamsley uh, approving those two defense motions. And that's the way it should be. Those three uh, men need to stand trial for what they did. Were they uh, responsible 
uh, for what appears to clearly be a, uh, an unprovoked murder. And what Ahmad Arbery did or did not do earlier in his life is irrelevant to him running down that street. You know, uh, Michael, it, it, we should not forget about the fact, and this relates specifically to the overhaul of the citizen's arrest law, that there was a possibility if video of that incident had not been made public, those three men may never have been charged with a crime because we had the first prosecutors who looked at that case dismissing, telling police we're not going to, we don't want to bring charges. They were executing a legal citizen's arrest. This trial may never have happened once again, if not for video. And include the George Floyd murder as well. And of course, the role that iPhones and video have played in advancing the cause of uh, fairness and justice in our nation. Uh, at some point, sociologists and historians will make the connection. But, Bill, if you may, I, I want to say something. First, I have to acknowledge Ms. Wanda Cooper Jones, Ahmad's mother, who's under unbearable pain and suffering, has comported herself in a way that makes not just mothers but all citizens of Georgia proud. And we talk, and sometimes we're part of it. But, you know, I was proud of Georgia's political leadership. And that's the governor, the lieutenant governor, the uh, Senator Tanya Anderson, the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus. This was an example of how we can improve and uh, not just state government, but improve the quality of life for all of our citizens and, and expand justice and fairness when we can just come together. So yesterday was an example of that. And uh, I was proud of my state government yesterday and proud of the legislature who moved uh, with, with, with more than deliberate speed to move quickly to correct this historical wrong that all of us are proud of. So kudos to the Black Caucus, Al Williams, Tanya Anderson, Senator Jones, and others working with the Republican leadership and to get this done. Michael, um, as long as uh, you're talking right now, so the, the ball is in your court, uh, I, I want to just quickly uh, uh, ask you about a, a sort of a related matter here. Uh, this week in DeKalb County, the, I think it's the Georgia Historical Society, although you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a new marker has gone up to remind people of an awful lynching that took place in the county back in 1946. And it's part of an effort by the state to identify m many sites of lynchings and uh, put up markers that make it clear uh, the wrongdoing that this state experienced uh, in those bad days. Oh, absolutely. And uh, a sad, but I think an appropriate uh, commemoration of a horrific event, uh, hats off to the DeKalb NAACP, uh, Teresa Hardy, E.D. Smith led the effort working with the Georgia Historical Society and other groups uh, to, uh, to, to, to create a marker that helps us to remember, uh, not so much to make us angry, but hopefully to make us better. Uh, the things that we forget, we tend to repeat. And so this is just another example of our county, which is another sense of step forward in us uh, reckoning with our past so that we can create a more just and a fairer future for all of us. Um, thank you for uh, telling us about that. Uh, Sam Olins, one last thing before we leave. Uh, let's, not, uh, let's not leave without uh, pointing out that David Gambrell uh, died uh, this week, and so did C.T. Martin, longtime Atlanta City Councilman. Uh, Gambrell is a part of a fascinating chapter of Georgia history when he was appointed to the United States uh, Senate by former President Jimmy Carter, with whom he was closely allied. Uh, but what's particularly interesting about Gambrell is what happened to him in the election for that seat. Well, it's very similar to uh, Michael earlier talking about Kelly Leffler and uh, Reverend Warnock. Uh, sometimes being appointed to the Senate and running for quote-unquote uh, re-election isn't a gimme. And I think uh, the state of Georgia was very surprised when the, their son from Peach County uh, defeated Senator Gambrell. Uh, both of those individuals are great people. I mean, both 
former Senator Gambrell and former Senator Sam Nunn are great Georgians, great histories. Uh, it was my pleasure to uh, to work with Senator Gambrell on, on numerous issues. Um, you know, Georgia has a, a, a proud history of folks that actually cared and that uh, and that served admirably. And uh, it, um, you know, his passing was quiet, but, uh, but we certainly uh, appreciate his service. The same, of course, for C.T. Martin, another gentleman that clearly served his community that didn't seek limelight, that really wanted to just do a really good job for his constituents. And we need more folks like them. Tamar, uh, it, it was Sam Nunn, of course, a young uh, Georgia legislator who surprised the entire state by winning that seat and went on to one of the most illustrious careers uh, in the United States Senate of certainly any Georgian who served in that job, Tamar. Yeah, uh, but unlike the Republican Party after the, you know, the split over Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler, the Democratic Party at the time was able to, um, to kind of circle the wagons and, and support Senator Nunn from, from there on out. So there, there are a lot of interesting parallels, but it also goes to show how different uh, state politics is right now. Um, but, but amazing, Jim Galloway, my, my former colleague, wrote a great column about it last year that's worth your time. Michael, we got about 20 seconds for you to say just a couple of words about uh, either, either one of those gentlemen. Oh, C.T. Martin. Uh, my, my condolences to his family, but he was a great man, a life well lived. And Atlanta uh, is the beneficiary of his great leadership. Michael Thurman, Sam Olins, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation today on Political Rewind. I appreciate very much your taking the time to be with us. We're, we're out of time for the show today. Back again tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask above your nose, and tell a friend to get vaccinated just like you've been. See you all.